0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm going to play you a clip that is absolutely typical. Just not quite in the way you think.
1: Tobogganing has been banned at dozens of hills across Toronto, including the very popular winter hangout spot here at Eastland Park. And while residents are patiently waiting for more snow to fall, they're also sounding off.
0: Now, I know what most of you are thinking. Typical Toronto. The city that hates fun. And listen, you kind of have a point. It is definitely on brand. But no. What is typical here is not Toronto. It's the act of prohibiting something that kids love to do, like tobogganing, or something that gives them a sense of power or danger or freedom because man somebody could possibly get hurt. In recent decades, we have curtailed kids' freedom, we have limited their risk and we have stifled their independence. All in an attempt to keep these children as safe as possible. I am not coming at this from a high horse. I'm a parent, I have done this too. But guess what? It hasn't worked. Not for my kid, and the numbers say not for yours either, or for anyone's. Now maybe it has kept them a little safer from some physical harm. Maybe it's left them with an unscraped knee or a non-bonked head. But the research shows that kids today are more fearful and more anxious than ever. And the stuff that that same research tells us teaches kids how to properly combat anxiety and fear? It's risk-taking. It's doing something a little bit dangerous. Something that might hurt, but won't kill you. And then doing it again and pushing yourself a little bit further. So what exactly are we doing to our kids by keeping them as safe as possible? And how do we start to undo it? I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Mariana Brassoni is the director of the Human Early Learning Partnership. She is a professor at the University of British Columbia and also leads the Play Outside UBC Lab. Hello, Mariana.
1: Hello, nice to talk to you.
0: Now, you are all the way out there in Vancouver, but to start with, I have to ask you, um, from the center of the universe here in Toronto, have you heard about our uh, mini little tobogganing scandal?
1: Yes, I actually have been contacted, I've been talking to a lot of people about it lately. (laughs) It created a
0: lot of waves here um, because it is so typically Toronto. For anyone uh, who doesn't know, The city of Toronto recently closed or at least posted no tobogganing signs on more than 40 hills that they, I guess, deem to be not fit for tobogganing. And uh, it's caused quite a local uproar here. And I want to ask you, as someone who deals in this stuff, you know, we make jokes here about Toronto being lame, but how common is this kind of rule around uh, where and how kids play these days?
1: Yeah, we've seen a lot of these kinds of banning of activities, so Toronto's not unique. For example, I heard about a school in Edmonton a couple of years ago that banned cartwheels because kids' wrists might get injured. And so, you know, it's it's disappointing because, it, you know, really it doesn't follow the research evidence or even necessarily the injury statistics. And yet it's it's yet another way that children's freedoms are getting restricted.
0: Where does the sentiment that creates these kind of rules come from? And when did that start?
1: Yeah, it's it's complex, but uh, really fascinating. So we kind of point to the 80s, the, the late 80s in particular, as as a big turning point, where there was a shift towards what we call intensive parenting. So this model of parenting where parents were expected to be much more involved in their kids' lives, to curate their lives to make sure that they were getting the quote-unquote right experiences to succeed. And where this came from was really an increase in inequities in society such that you had a bigger gap between rich and poor. Hmm. And so all of a sudden it was like, oh, parents were realizing that their kids needed to accomplish more, to be more educated, to go to university, et cetera, to get even the same kinds of jobs they had, let alone to, to succeed further. Uh, and so there became this kind of intense competition to have uh, children succeed and be the ones who who were able to get those jobs, and it just intensified over time as the uh, inequities intensified. Right. And then at the same time, there were there were other things going on in terms of our expectations as a society that we could control risks, that there were ways to manage risks, which was a good thing, right? Because at the same time, we had really important safety measures like seatbelts and those kinds of things uh, come in that that reduced injuries. But at the same time, there was the perception that kids in particular should be kept as safe as possible. And if that anything happened to them, that really it was on the parents and the parents were were seen as kind of negligent or not good parents um, if something happened and if their kids didn't succeed as well.
0: I'm also guilty of this, and we can talk about that a little bit later as well, but I can understand the sentiment from parents of wanting your child to excel and to be kept safe and et cetera, et cetera. But how do we get from that sense from parents to organizations like local governments or school boards or whatever enacting rules that are designed, I guess, to keep kids perfectly safe at all costs?
1: I mean, there's a few reasons that that happens. One is that, you know, the people running those organizations are also parents. You know, they're beholden to parents who vote, right? And so if the sentiment of society is that this is what we want, then that's what happens. Right. Um, And then, you know, I've been doing injury prevention research for over two decades now, and my profession is part of that move. What happens a lot in, in public health is we look at statistics and we see, oh, you know, Injuries are the leading cause of death for kids, and they and they are because kids they're not dying of cardiovascular disease or cancer or things like that that kill older people. Hmm. Um, and so injuries are the leading cause of death. And so we're trying to get those down and down. But it's a bit of um, a blind kind of single minded without thinking about kind of the implications of trying to reduce injuries to zero and the knockoff effects that this can have on kids' lives, in particular when we're dealing with injuries around play.
0: One more question on where this comes from, because I think a lot of people uh, would make this leap themselves. How much of this has to do with parents and society in general uh, being increasingly litigious? Like, I know that the no-tobogganing signs Council has now backtracked on them saying, oh, oh, it doesn't really mean like this is against the law. It just means like toboggan at your own risk.
1: Right. Yeah. Really, I think if we boil all of this down to one thing, it's fear. Mm. So the biggest thing that limits kids being able to just play the way they want to play is adults' fear. And so when you look at parents, it's it's fear of their kids getting hurt. It's fear of their kids not succeeding, you know, and spending, wasting time playing instead of, you know, doing math or whatever. When you look at regulators and and municipal planners or, you know, school principals or whatever, it's fear of kids getting injured and it's fear of liability. Mm -hmm. Now, these fears are not necessarily rational, right? They're not necessarily based on statistics or evidence but they're such powerful motivators, you know, and as anybody who's been afraid, you know, you do kind of do anything you can to, to try and get rid of that fear. And so we're in a situation right now where we're making decisions as a society to help control adult fears rather than focusing on what the kids need for their, their health and their development and well-being. And so the fear of liability is an example of that. And it's something that's bled over from the US. We actually have less of an issue it, uh, for it here in Canada, much less than in the US. But we have, you know, because of media reports or, you know, other things that, you know, th- leaping over the border, mm. we have the perception that this is a, a big issue when it might not necessarily be. Well, let's
0: get to what we do know then. First, maybe because it's a term that we've heard recently, can you define what risky play is? And second, what does the research tell us about it?
1: So risky play is thrilling and exciting forms of play where children are involved with the uncertainty and there's a chance of physical injury. So I'll I'll break that down for you a bit. So the thrilling and exciting is really kids pushing themselves past where they usually push, right? So going on that edge of just making it a little more scary the engaging with uncertainty is that they don't know what the outcome it could be it could be positive or it could be negative you know and so and that's really part of it is exploring with the world and with their bodies and what could happen anytime you're moving your body there's a chance of injury in this case you know taking extra risks of course there's a chance of injury and and that's what I've dedicated a good part of my career to is understanding what that looks like it's important to note that risky play looks different for different kids so Typically, when we think about risky play, it's things like climbing trees or, you know, or sledding down a hill or, you know, jumping farther than you might be used to, you know, building a den with tools or those kinds of things, rough and tumble play, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But what risky play looks like actually looks different for different kids. And it depends on their developmental stage, their their comfort with risk, uh, their past experiences, et cetera. So we can point to different activities but it's not on us to say that's risky play or that's not risky play it's on us to really give kids these opportunities to figure out what this looks like for themselves
0: and what does the research tell us that kids get out of risky play and how should we be striking that balance between the chance of injury and the rewards of pushing themselves
1: yeah uh, the, you know the million dollar question so i think the easiest way to really understand what risky play provides for kids is to think back to your favorite childhood play memory. And so, you know, we've asked a lot of adults, you know, in many different parts of the world about this. And a good chunk of them talk about being outdoors with their friends, hanging out without adults around, being out till the street lights are on, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. When you think about the kinds of things that they talk about, why that's so important, it's things like a sense of joy and fun and being able to run and jump and shout and move their bodies in ways that nobody's telling them, you know, inside, you know, don't run, et cetera, et cetera, or adults telling them what to do or how to do it, a sense of freedom and and being able to, you know, experience these strong and thrilling emotions, hang out with their friends, figure things out together, what they're going to do, resolve disputes, figure out solutions to problems, et cetera. And so you can actually map all of those things on key, developmental tasks and experiences. Things like kids are more physically active when they're doing this kind of play. They're less sedentary. They're gaining physical movement skills and physical literacy because they're moving their bodies in new and different ways. They're gaining cognitive skills, you know, figuring out what they want to do and how they want to do it and coming up with the plans for that and keeping their attention on that task. That's executive functioning skills. They're absolutely critical for so many aspects of kids' lives. You've got them hanging out with friends and negotiating and and having disputes and resolving disputes, a tremendous amount of social emotional learning. And then some really interesting research around the mental health benefits, which is really nuanced and and fascinating. So first of all, you you know you think about kids trying these risks, testing out their bodies and what they're comfortable with, and doing that without an adult organizing or controlling that experience. and when they succeed, the sense of self-confidence and, and just, you know, I did it that comes from that is, is really tremendously impactful. And let's say something goes wrong, you know, and maybe they even get hurt. They also recognize that they were able to manage that, that the world didn't kind of fall down on their head because mm-hmm. something went wrong. And so the sense of resilience and capacity and self-efficacy that comes from that is also really, really tremendous. So really, if you think about it, just about every aspect, and I'm only giving you a slice of it, just about every aspect of children's health and development is is wrapped up in being able to do this kind of play.
0: Do we have a way to quantify how much of this type of play uh, kids get now compared to the past?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And we're trying to get at that. So the closest we have is participation puts out a report card uh, every two years on the physical activity of children and youth. And so their last report card was in 2022. And in that report card, they have a grade for active play. That does include indoor and outdoor play. But in this case, what they showed was they gave Canada a D minus grade for active play. And so it meant that only 25% of children and youth were engaging in more than two hours a day on average of unstructured active play. Some research from other parts of the world, Uh, so for example, in the UK, where they actually have quite precise kind of, you know, measures of children's days, we've seen a 30% decrease in kids engaging in outdoor play between 1975 and 2015. Hmm. So that's like a huge drop. And at the same time, you saw a 22% increase in screen-based activities, for example.
0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. I'm sure everybody listening has heard at least one or two stories about how our kids have been doing mentally throughout this pandemic. How do you figure out what kind of difference uh, active play and risky play can make to kids' mental health. And uh, when it seems like it's so malleable and affected by so many different things, including like a global pandemic, how do you try to get a sense of of the impact of it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And there's some really interesting research going on to, to do exactly this. So for example, in one of our studies, uh, we were looking at a childcare environment and we we brought in more outdoor play materials, natural loose parts, uh, you know, sticks, mud, et cetera, and, and did some training with the early childhood educators in order to have the kids outside more and to have more freedom and and more opportunities for risky play while they were outside. And even in this small study in two childcare centers, you know, we collected data on the kids' uh, mental health and well-being before and after. We saw a significant increase in their mental health and well-being. And then there's other research by other um, investigators around the world, such as Helen Dodd in the UK. So she's a psychologist who actually does treatments for kids with anxiety. And so she's doing studies looking at risky play as the treatment for children with anxiety. And the reason that it really could work so well is because part of the challenges that people with anxiety experience is these cognitive distortions, so that they're more likely to kind of label something as scary or fearful than uh, as neutral or as thrilling and exciting. So if we go back to the definition I gave you of Risky Play, the thrilling and exciting forms of play, those kinds of emotions, they feel the same way in the body as fear and anxiety. And so In engaging in these kinds of play in in what is really relatively safe circumstances, kids have the opportunity to experience what it feels like to have these strong emotions and not automatically attribute them as fear and anxiety, but to be able to actually recognize that there's other kinds of and even positive uh, emotions that trigger those reactions in the body. And so it kind of gets them used to managing these strong emotions and to think about attributing them in other ways.
0: You know, when you just asked about people's favorite childhood memories, you know, the thing that immediately came to my mind is me and my cousins getting lost in the woods, like actually lost. You know, we wanted to walk from one end to the forest to the other, and we just kept walking till we came out somewhere. Our parents were Terrified and like lost their mind, but it's a really strong positive memory for me now. And then I think if my daughter were to do the same thing today, I would go crazy. And it seems very hypocritical of me, but I bet I'm not the only parent who feels this way.
1: Yes, exactly. So we've done a lot of research with parents, and that reaction is quite common. So, in fact, we created a tool for parents that you can find at outsideplay.org for exactly this. So we use behavior change theory, you know, cognitive behavior techniques in order to help parents kind of think differently, reframe their ideas of risk. Um, And and part of what we do, you know, the example you just gave is beautiful because one of the first activities in the tool is like, think back to the way you were playing when you were a kid and how is your child playing now and why that difference? Mm -hmm. What the tool takes uh, parents towards is really we want them to set a very simple, underwhelming goal for what they can do. Not something that just seems too big to handle, something that really they could do today and it's, oh yeah, I could do that, no problem. But if, if I were to break it down, there's three key ingredients to children's good, risky play experiences. It's time, space, and freedom. So, having parents actually prioritize this as something that kids need to do every day and, and making space and time in the calendar for that to happen. Space, so access to interesting places to play, and these can be around the house, you know, and it's kids can find all sorts of interesting places, but they need to have access to those. And then the third is freedom. And the as I mentioned earlier, the biggest barrier to freedom is us as adults and our fears. Uh, And so it's kind of managing those fears. Mm -hmm. We as parents, you know, I have two kids too, and we're bombarded with the do's and don'ts of parenting and what good parenting looks like. And so what we're asking parents to do is actually just block out that noise. The very first activity in our tool is what do you want for your child when they grow up? So we want you to really get in touch with your core values. And so some people talk about, for example, independence or resilience or wisdom or, you know, whatever you can, you can choose the value. And then it's thinking about if this is my value, am I giving my child the kinds of experiences that would lead to this child actually embodying these values when they grow up? And so what we have to keep in mind is that development is gradual. And so the way we've designed society right now is we think, okay, we're going to keep kids super safe, as safe as possible, and then they're going to hit 18, and then they're off on their own, and they've just got to figure it out. And yet we haven't built the skills gradually over time, and in circumstances that are relatively safe, like play, so that they can actually make these very competent you know, adult decisions, Hmm. engaging with a world that's filled with uncertainty and risk every day and in much more risky circumstances than when they were kids, right? And so we have to understand that we have to build these muscles around risk management, um, competence of managing risks, critical thinking skills, independence, etc. These are all muscles that have to be exercised and built over time. They just don't come online when kids hit adulthood.
0: It is one thing for a parent to rewire themselves to become more comfortable with their kid taking risks. How do parents do that in a society that seems to frown on that? I will give you another example. Uh, my wife and my daughter were going to the grocery store to go grocery shopping. It's a block away. My daughter wanted to walk there by herself. My wife said, fine, you know, I'll take the car and I'll meet you there. She drove along behind her in the car and let her navigate her own way to the grocery store. And when she got there, there was uh, another person there who was like, is this your daughter? She was walking all by herself alone. And my wife was like, yeah, I know. I was there. It's fine but very judgmental, right? Uh, This is not a unique experience. I'm sure you remember out West, uh, the father who got in a ton of trouble for teaching his kids how to take the bus by themselves. So it's one thing to like reset your own uh, risk assessment. It's another thing to like exist in a society that hasn't done that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And in fact, when we talk to parents and we talk, okay, so what are your biggest fears around this? You know, they talk about things like injury and kidnapping and they also talk about the fear of being seen as a bad parent. Yeah. It is an overwhelming emotion. And I I get it. I am a parent too. And I, and I you know, I do remember Adrian Crook's story about the kids on the bus. But we provide tools for parents to be able to kind of figure this out in their own neighborhoods, right? So it does take some effort. So talking to your neighbors, other parents with kids around so that you can create a situation where in your neighborhood, the kids can hang out together, you know, go into each other's houses and all of that in ways that are that are comfortable to them. But I also find, you know, when I talk to parents and, and they try some of this stuff, for example, like you and your wife did or even and for some parents, it's even just, OK, I'm just going to count to 15 before I say be careful next time. Right. Hmm. And, and just building those skills. Right. Like people have to start where you're at. There's no shame in that. And just build those skills. But if you really tune into your values around what's most important to you for this child, then that does give you some strength when strangers are coming around and passing judgment to be like, I believe in this. This random stranger who I'm going to interact with for 30 seconds isn't going to shake me off this course. And with this Canadian Pediatric Society statement that came out last week, this is part of what we're trying to do you know, at a national level, to change the societal conversation so that there is more recognition and more space for parents to be able to make these kinds of decisions.
0: Last question. We've talked about uh, parents. We've talked about society. What about the kids themselves? What can parents do if they have a child who, frankly, this has rubbed off on and is showing signs of being uh, risk averse themselves, especially physically?
1: Yeah, and actually we do see this uh, in the research. Parents' fears and anxieties do get transmitted to kids. So it's also not about pushing kids beyond their limits, you know. So you've got to gradually build those skills, right? Hmm. Just expecting from one day to the next that you've uh, decided that this is really good and you want your kid to have this. And let's say you take them to the playground and they're not climbing high enough. And you're like, higher, you know, that we don't want to encourage that at all. We really want to build children's skills to figure this out for themselves and gradually increase for themselves and for the parents to give them that space to do so. And so for most kids, this is really, it's, it's just repeated exposure. Over time, as they get more and more experience, being able to make these decisions for themselves, not having an adult swoop in they're going to be more and more comfortable around listening to themselves rather than looking externally or focusing on the fear. When you're dealing with a situation where, where kids are straying more into anxiety, then it can be helpful to be connecting with a psychologist to get some of that support. And really, as I mentioned, this kind of play is, is a wonderful way for kids to be able to start experiencing these emotions and parents can scaffold some of that, right? So bring in, bring in loose parts, bring in, you know, maybe even some tools that you can help your child work with, you know, to gradually have them have some of these experiences in, in ways that don't flood them, but that just allow them to push themselves a little bit beyond where they were at, you know, the day before.
0: Marianna, thank you so much for this. Um, Really uh, good research and uh, I think something a lot of parents and even those with kids in their lives need to hear.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. And thanks for the time to do this.
0: Dr. Marianna Brossoni from the University of British Columbia. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also... Give us some feedback on this episode. I'm sure there are a few parents who feel a few ways about what Mariana had to say today, and we would love to hear it. The way to do that is via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or by calling us, 416-935-5935. You can find The Big Story in any podcast player that you happen to use And of course, you can always ask your smart speaker or your car speaker or any speaker that listens to your voice to play the Big Story podcast. If you've got a chance to give us a rating or a review and you haven't done it yet, what are you waiting for? And if you've got a friend who is maybe just getting into podcasts finally after all these years, send them our way. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.